Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm a total modelizer. Joining me is Marilyn Monroe before the Kennedys got to her, Dolly Alderton. Hello you. Hi baby. I am so pleased that we have managed to professionalise, if not monetize, most of the bollocks that we talk to each other all day every day. The next podcast we do has to be about your dog's personality. (laughs) And then the follow-up needs to be petty arguments on Twitter we can't let go of. And then we've and then we've professionalized all of our conversations. I was just thinking back, it's a real shame I've already filed my taxes this year because now that all of our sex in the city conversations are technically a business expense, I could uh, <laughs> I could really put some dinners on that. <laughs> so this is our Sex in the City mini-series. We're going to do one episode per one season. Um, six six seasons, as, as every diehard fan will know. Plus two movies. We're still negotiating whether or not we're going to do both movies because the second movie makes me so depressed that maybe I'd rather not. <laughs> I feel like the second movie... You and I are obviously the truest, truest fans of Sex in the City and we can excuse a lot of bullshit... But I think even you and I, I don't think that we can give it an hour. But let's wait and see. So you've been my friend for a while. I've had this podcast for a while. Obviously, I've wanted to have you on for a long time. Uh, Every time we talked about it, we've discussed like a bunch of different books that both of us like, like and respect and are excited about. But nothing excites you and me in our conversations more than talking absolute shite about Sex and the City for (laughs) hours and hours to the point where I've literally had like sleepovers with you where our noses are like two inches apart and it's totally dark and we just go okay what's your favorite outfit from season five because I know mine (laughs) there have been not one but two trips away where Caroline and I had very big plans for the evening and instead every single night we got into bed after dinner nine o'clock yeah put on an episode every half hour episode would take around two hours to watch because we would keep pausing it to give each other our sort of Roger Ebert <laughs> commentary as we went and then like incessantly praising the other one on how incisive their commentary had been. So you don't have to like this show to have seen it a million times. And in fact, most people I speak to don't seem to like it that much. I mean, they they know yeah. all of the relationships, they know all of the friendships, they know everything about it, but they're also like... I hate Carrie, they're so wealthy, they're this, they're that, the other. They're kind of, they tend to be more full of complaints than they are praise. Whereas when I talk about it with you, we're just two fans who want to fan out. And I just love that. Like, I believe that one day we will take the bus tour. 
<laughs> oh my god, we are so gonna take the bus tour. The bus. Oh my god, and I'm gonna wear some crap little tutu dress as we take the bus tour. I have just seen our friendship past fifty years. It's so cute. I can see it so clearly. And we're gonna stay in a real like tourist midtown hotel. Yeah, yeah. The premiere in Midtown. And we're we're both gonna like <laughs> reference different sort of carry eras. Like I'll be there with like a bandana on my arm and you'll have like yeah. her piss politician years with the big flower or something. But what's so interesting as well is I think that there has been like the fandom of sex in the city, our generation, like millennial fe- millennial female fandom has changed so much that when I used to see Sex and the City fandom manifests. Like I remember my early 20s, I went to New York and I went to some New York gift shop and they had all these cookies that said, I'm a Samantha, I'm mm. a all the different girls' names. And there was just this enormous untouched pile of I'm a Miranda. <laughs> and I was like, not only is that so telling about the show, that is so telling about like the female psyche. <laughs> the female The psyche. male psyche, heterosexuality and dating culture. That just no one wants to have that I'm a Miranda cookie. Whereas now I feel like you and I, when we're on that bus tour, are going to be full, short, red hair, floor length puffer jacket, oh. standing out about Miranda. But you know what's great about that as well? Is that a Miranda would never buy a cookie. <laughs> so true and she would be so mortified at someone buying a cookie in her name I think it is really important that you that you point that out about the complaining of which I have partaken in many zone one pubs in London (laughs) over the last decade I very much have been entrenched in that discourse particularly psychoanalytical breakdowns of why Carrie is a terrible friend and a terrible heroine I get it it's very tempting but if you are here, listeners, to enjoy that takedown of Carrie, tune out right now. Yeah, not for you. Because Caroline and I... Not the podcast for we, you. That's not what we're going to be doing here. Caroline and I can identify in Carrie everything we loathe about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And therefore, she is always going to be beloved to us. Completely beloved. And I also want to... I feel like I want to say to those people sometimes, it's like, do, do you just not want a television show with drama in it? Like, do you just want people operating like clockwork to totally appropriate emotional cues all the time? Totally. Because, totally. Like, watch Bake Off, you know? <laughs> like, you know, don't, don't fucking watch this show. <laughs> I totally agree. And you and I have ranted extensively about this before. And we've got to be careful when we do rant about it that we don't sound just like old, old men. <laughs> but that very 2021 lens through which we examine culture of basically looking at how much fictional characters behave like sort of new statesman columnists. Oh my God. (laughs) I find just, it's not that I find it pious or puritanical. I just find it, as you said, quite boring. Yeah. Because the whole point of drama is it's about flawed people. Fucking amen. So I feel like we've, we've provided a really good taste of what we're actually here for, which is an unmitigated fan fest. But what else are we? We've we've written a little um, a manifesto. Our manifesto is, this is not going to be an episode by episode analysis. If you are looking for that, Juno Dawson does a fantastic podcast. Yes, it's called So I Got to Thinking. So listen to So I Got to Thinking. 
This is not going to be a judgment or a breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show, although we will talk about them if they come up. This is not going to be a place where we roll our eyes about things that people have already rolled their eyes about before. We are not going to be talking extensively about the alleged ongoing feud between Kim Cattrall and Sarah Jessica Parker. And we take that as a political stance. We take it as a political stance. We love Samantha. We love Kim Cattrall. And we've listened to the Origins podcast. And as far as Sarah Jessica Parker is aware, she doesn't even understand why the feud is happening. So if she doesn't get it and she was there for 10 years, then what new insight are we going to have? Well said, my girl. (laughs) Although I must say, the day that Kim Cattrall did that Instagram comment was, I'm going to call it a news story. The news story I've been most invested in in my entire adult life. It was the female journalism's, um, a certain kind of female journalism Watergate, wasn't it? It was like, wow, we have the tapes. (laughs) (laughs) We so had the tapes that day. Um, So that's our only comment on the, (laughs) that quite extensive chat is uh, our only comment on the Kim Cattrall, Sarah Jessica Parker feud. Um, We are not going to be jam-packed with trivia, but if you are interested, Caroline and I have both been reading and loving a book called Sex in the City and asked by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. And to give you a taste of how incredibly intense this book is, it's, it's really only for proper fans. It begins with, I left my marriage because of Sex in the City. Yes. Yes. The level of detail on this highly readable book, which I tore through, is so that there is an entire chapter on the people who founded the Magnolia Bakery and how they no lo- are no longer business partners. It's like super dorky and analytical, but very well written, as Caroline said, and really fun. We're interested in stepping back in time and looking at each season as an individual piece of work, looking at themes, character journeys and lasting messages of it. Little note on themes. Caroline and I are obsessed with themes. We talk about themes, maybe as much as we talk about sex in the city, themes across everything. It's so funny and embarrassing because I think what it is, is that you and I have this very, the shared thing where we both um, feel very dumb a lot of the time. And I think Mm -hmm. when we talk Mm -hmm. about themes, it's like we're two like A-level English students just trying, like (laughs) desperately underlining, uh, you know, racial slurs into Kill a Mockingbird saying themes, racism. (laughs) Themed, yeah, yeah. It's also because I think I can't speak on behalf of you. I definitely am aware that my books are not sparsely written and (laughs) full of elegant, short, sparse sentences. Um, So I feel like themes are the only thing that I have to prove that I one day can be literary. Anyway, so there will be, this is like our playground for themes. There will be lots of thematic discussions um, that, thank you for that. Well said. Thank you for delivering the manifesto as if we are two disgraced <laughs> politicians holding a kind of a press conference. <laughs> and our, sort of, our secretary is reading from an A4 sheet. Um, do, I think we should talk about how we each got into the show. How did you get into this show first? I don't think we've ever talked about this. I got into the show because I wasn't allowed to watch Sex in the City in my house growing up, my parents were weirdly strict about stuff we were and weren't allowed to watch. I kind of had my parents, you know, checking up on what I was watching up until I was like 15 years Ooh, old. Lame. Yeah. Yeah, I know. 
Don't worry, I've paid for it in therapy. Um, <laughs> what a harrowing adolescent life I had. Um, and I was... <laughs> I uh, was finally allowed to watch Sex and the City. Uh, it was right after my GCSEs. I got hold of my mum's series two on DVD and I ripped through it in about a week. And then I was completely obsessed. I watched it all throughout university, almost compulsively. And then something happened when I moved to London that I found my my obsession with sex in the city, I suddenly found very embarrassing Mm. and my housemates were the same. And it was this sort of covert activity. And we had the big black and pink box set. So iconic. You see that in charity (laughs) shops up and down the country, England and Ireland. Why is that? They must regret giving it away so much. I bet you it's loads of 24 year olds moving in with their boyfriend for the first time. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I know that's what it is because we used to, we'd just be like, oh, get the, get the box set out then. And whenever one of us was bringing a bloke home for the first time, we would normally get a message on the, on the WhatsApp group just saying, put the box set away. And what, someone would have to put it away because it was the idea of being three women who've moved to a city yeah, and then watching Sex in the City every night was just so mortifying to be able to sort of trace back <laughs> oh God. all the motivations of why we're here and what we're trying to do was too embarrassing. So I was really, really ashamed of it. And then something happened in my late 20s, I think probably when I was writing so much about love and sex and dating and men and women, that I felt like I had to I had to really re-examine how important that show had been to me and really like pay my dues to it. And then I do think as well, our friendship and feeling like I have this kind of sacred, safe seminar space to be so nerdy with you about it has really allowed me just to embrace how important the show has been, not just for me, but for my work as well, I think. It's, How yeah, about you? And, and yeah, slightly different. I, I had that sort of um, different approach to it because I have an older sister who's 10 years older than me. And so I absorbed so much culture through her. And because I'm the youngest as well, my parents had kind of given up on safeguarding media. But one sort of <laughs> thir- <laughs> one Thursday night, um, my sister and her friend Sheena, they would come over and they watch Buffy and Angel together. And I was allowed to stay up and watch it with them, provided that I didn't talk. And uh, they would just be sitting smoking fags on either side of me. And I would just be like in the middle, just so delighted to be included. And um, I remember they, you know, Angel was over and they switched over and Sex and the City was on and they kept it on. And it was the episode that I've since looked up. It's called, it's uh, season three. It's Running With Scissors. And it's the episode where Samantha meets this guy she wants to have sex with. And he has a swing in his apartment. Oh yeah, that is like a full on episode, that episode. It's really full on. I'm like, I probably, yeah. I, I can't imagine. I think I was like 12. Um, but I'm sure the amount of sex I'd seen on TV was so limited at that point. Um, but the idea that not only were people having casual sex, but they were also had like accoutrements and pieces of furniture in their house yeah, that yeah. would like um, go in with their sex lives was insane to me. Uh, and then because there's this odd like pantomime of Samantha and this guy in the swing but then it also has this thing like it swings back 
where it's, you know, she he won't have sex with her until she gets a HIV test. And so mm. there's this, it's very, it's full on sexually, but it's also it's full, really on full on in terms of the themes of the time. And themes? Ring-a-ding-ding. Themes? <laughs> Everyone at home, take a drink. And of like sexuality and safety and, and all these things and like this character having to confront it. Anyway, it was huge to me. And then it quickly got around the family that Caroline was allowed to watch Sex in the City. And uh, I think my sister got in trouble. <laughs> and then after that, my entire life was trying to navigate the Underground Railroad of getting, <laughs> getting access to more <laughs> Sex in the City because it blew my mind so much. And then so I- how, were, how old were you first, first viewing? I think about 12. Okay, that is quite little. Yeah, it is quite little. And I, wa- yeah. I, I was a late developer as well, you know. I was still very much into, like, playing pretend games when I was 12. Like, I wasn't, like, Aww. sassy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I quickly after that, I made a friend who had all the DVDs and who now, on reflection, our friendship was about me watching her DVDs. And like, Interesting. she was like the German officer that I slept with to get nylons and chocolate. <laughs> and I don't, I really don't mind saying that because later on in life, she, um, she slept with one of my boyfriends. So it's like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. And also she couldn't have been watching Sex in the City that closely. No, no. She missed all the themes of sisterhood. Um, <laughs> she skipped over that's so things. interesting. That's so interesting to me that you watched it at 12 and you were a late developer. I didn't know that that you were, you know, you think of yourself as a late developer because I think something that was so potent for me with Sex and the City is, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember in my household and with my mum's friends, like Sex and the City and seeing billboards in, in London for Sex and the City on Channel 4, it was seen as being like incredibly... The way the people in my life spoke about it was that it was incredibly, incredibly near the knuckle and incredibly racy yeah. and something they'd never seen before and almost quite dangerous the way that they spoke about it. Totally. And I think one of the reasons I became so obsessed with Sex and the City is the same, watching those DVDs as a teenager back to back with just my hand like, you know, elbow deep into a into a bag of Walker's sensations um, is because no one wanted to fuck me. And oh. I had no access to anyone who potentially might want to fuck me. And I was so obsessed with sex. And I'd been yeah. so obsessed with sex from a really young age. And it's something that's like, I don't know if it's the all girls school thing. I don't know if it's just like a smutty, <laughs> smutty black sheep mentality that I have. But when I was a teenager, the passport to a well-lived life in my head and the passport to adulthood and sophistication was a sex life. Yes. And that's yeah. what was so exciting to me about Sex and the City because in my world, I couldn't get a boy to even reply to me on my Nokia 3210. So the idea that you can you can have four women who have their own apartments where they can smoke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. Can, you know, you couldn't you couldn't get that's all I ever wanted. I've wanted that since I was like 12. I wake up in this flat every day still being like I can't believe I'm finally. I just oh. I can eat what I want and I can smoke and I can play my own records. I can do what I want to do. And I think that yeah, that idea of I couldn't get a boy to to kind of reply to my text and there were these women who not only were with different boys every week, but they were like fucking them in swings, putting <laughs> cream all over them though it was just like how do they get all these men and how do they get these men to do all these imaginative things with them (laughs) 
So I had this thing where I was constantly watching and rewatching throughout my teens with this friend. And then when I grew up, I never had this sort of like big girly house share. But what I did have was mm. me and my friend Ryan lived together on and off a lot. And whenever we lived together, we would always just like hung over, you know, in his bed, like juve up to our noses, just watching yeah. Sex and City. Ryan, yeah. in case it's not clear from context clues, is gay. And <laughs> And like we definitely did see it as like a blueprint for adult life and we just and that was the beginning I think of like us going on BuzzFeed and reading out loud to each other like oh the 20 reasons why Carrie's an asshole and then that's where the Carrie bashing began I think. Yeah I think we should just pause for a moment on the Carrie bashing because it is worth examining what it is about her that Mm. women seem to bristle against so much and I think the reason why you and I feel strangely protective of our friend is she definitely is someone who wants to have a big, exciting life and wants to be a big, exciting person. And sometimes in her execution of satisfying that appetite to to want to be exciting and charming and funny and memorable, she, she just gets it a little bit wrong. She goes oh. a little bit little bit too far and that is something I very much identify with oh so much and there's this, there's these moments as well where like and what's interesting is like you know eight out of ten times it works where Carrie is doing like mm, I'm just a cute little columnist and I'm a journalist yeah. I got a little paper and like I'm my little dress and my little shoes and like yeah, she's yeah. doing that thing where she she's being cute and she knows she's being cute and she's doing a mm. bit and most of the time it works but when it doesn't work and when it falls flat with people the way it like mm. sometimes and often uh falls flat with like big uh, yeah it's so crushing and it's so like oh stop it you horror yeah squirmy it's basically any woman who was told to stop showing off when she was a little girl yes. and it's definitely like the times in my life where i have got i have irritated people or i have got in trouble is when I think I'm being like Barbara Streisand or, yeah. you know, Liza Minnelli or Shirley MacLaine. I'm being a sort of like quirky, larger than life, daring woman. And actually, I'm just like being quite a nightmare. I know, I know. Some, sometimes <laughs> Do you know I, what like, I mean? Sometimes I don't even know what, I, what gets into me. I'm like, I enter the room thinking, I'm going to leave this room with everyone saying, who was that brassy dame? <laughs> Yes, yes. And I'm like, and you one have, day, why are you doing this? In w- one day, in someone else's memoir that I'm not that I'm not even a part of, there will be one sentence saying, all I remember of that party was there was this golden-haired Irish girl oh. who was chain-smoking by the window and doing, you know, a fabulous impression of Jack Nicholson. <laughs> I actually do have a great Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Oh, do you? I'm not going to do it, but See, I just want you to know it exists. I know you inside, know you inside out. Um, <laughs> but actually what you're being is just like a woman trying way too hard. And that's yeah. what I think so many people like project their own shame of themselves onto Carrie because in her moments where that fails, it's, it is squirmy. And <clears throat> it's really hard to capture that kind of squirm on camera. In series one, one of the moments where I find it, that I find so unbearable is when she goes around to Big's house. I've uh, definitely been this woman, and she's just on one that she wants to. She wants to be this kind of sexy, cool girlfriend who comes round and like 
I think she's trying to like fuck him on the sofa or something. He's just yeah. trying to watch a boxing match and he, he he can't get her off him. And and the more he struggles, the kind of cuter and sassier she tries to be. And, oh, it's horrible to watch. It's awful. It's so... But I love the her for that. I love her for yeah. that. And actually, like, I think I've said this to you before. Sarah Pascoe once said to me this thing about friendship that I think about all the time and is now like my mantra for patience in friendship. And Lord knows, I'm sure my friends have to exercise the same patience with me. She said, when I love someone, I commit to the whole experience of them. So that might mean that they talk too much about their boyfriend. That might mean that they're a bit too loud when they're drunk. That might mean that they are late all the time. But if I love them, I love the whole experience. And that's how I feel about our friend Carrie Bradshaw. So the pilot that Caroline and I watched together on holiday when we were meant to be going for a midnight swim. Every night of this holiday, Dolly was like, I think we should go for a midnight swim. And I was like, yeah, definitely tonight, knowing (laughs) we would never make it out for the midnight swim. And we would always come back from dinner at like quarter past 10 and and watch Sex and City. (laughs) We watched it together and we were astonished at what a dodgy as fuck pilot it is. First of all, the thing that I cannot understand is they open with a random story about a couple, which is a ghosting story, actually, about her friend who got ghosted Mm -hmm. by a man who she met at an art gallery, who an art gallery, Caroline and I would argue that art galleries might be the fifth member of Sex and the City exhibition openings rather than Manhattan. They're at this elusive exhibition opening. I've been living in this city 10 years, never been fucking invited to one. And they're both meant to be English, but they strangely have Australian accents, mm-hmm. which is an ongoing theme. And they go they go like house hunting on their third date. And then uh, suddenly, and he's like, oh, I want you to meet my parents. And then he's she's like, oh, and then of course he never called. <laughs> and that and is then, such a good impression. <laughs> Of course, he never called. And uh, then it, it cuts to like Sarah Jessica Parker with absolutely minging hair, uh, with sort of dark brown slash purple lipstick. That kind of purple that looks like um, you know when you've drank to the end of a cup of hot chocolate and all the that's dust exactly, at the end. Yeah, that's exactly uh, that's the color. And uh, she, and then she's just having a fag, and they're in a diner, and she's like, "Yeah, well, that's New York for you." <laughs> Effectively, yeah. And then it goes into all those strange talking heads. So it's a really weirdly structured show, that first episode. I think there was quite a long lag time between that pilot mm-hmm. being made and then, because they had to persuade Sarah Jessica Parker to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next episode. And the thing that Caroline and I, I think we just need to lay our cards on the table right now. The thing that we hate the most about that pilot and I would say potentially the whole show mm. would you agree? yes it's my least favourite moment of the whole show I think is absolutely. why do people think it's good? <laughs> it's like not only is it like crass and weird to end the first episode of an iconic TV show with a non-word with the word fucking in the middle of it <laughs> Um, it doesn't make any sense with this character who like re- doesn't really even swear for the rest of the series. I mean, he does no. a bit, but like not not a lot. And like he's supposed also, to be- what are we thirteen swearing? Why is that so 
iconic. I don't get it. I feel like, please, if anyone is listening and they have the answer, can you explain why it's seen as this sort of cinematic moment akin to, you know, a line from Casablanca? To the point where actually I thought for years that it must be be in reference to an old movie line. Yeah. I was like, why are people thinking this is such an important moment for these characters? This weird non-word. So, okay, we don't care for the pilot. So we think, and we've talked about this a lot, that the first episode of Second City should be the Valley of 20-something Guys. Yes. Let's start from the beginning. So it begins with this thing where it's it's like a, once upon a time, there were two New Yorkers who kept running into each other. And we get this lovely sort of classic Hollywood meet cute series of meet cutes piled on top of each other yeah. and it's like it's like oh we're at an art opening but then suddenly like oh we're meeting at a mutual friend's son's bris, bris. <laughs> like, that, yeah and it's so like tracy and hepburn it's so cary grant and rosin russell it feels so classic totally. hollywood and you already feel like you're being geared up for the romance of a lifetime right even before they've said anything. Yeah, it's really smart. It's really smart the way that they did that. It's like, this is going to be a classical story. This yeah. is going to be... And the fact that it takes... So episode four, the one we're talking about, they've been bumping into each other for four episodes. So that's nearly halfway through the series before they even go on a date. Yeah, it's mad. So that's like the perfect rom-com uh, tool to get you really invested in these people is that they're meant to be together but we're just going to keep throwing obstacles in front of them that they have to find their way around to get to each other completely and like so we said at the top of this podcast that we're going to examine each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is and to me the great American novel of season one is Carrie Bradshaw is a New York party girl who has spent the last 10 years becoming a notable, independent, likeable, creative, interesting woman with a huge Rolodex of contacts who is beloved everywhere she goes. And this is the story of how she lost her fucking mind. This is like the unravelling and the unwinding of a previously quite healthy and balanced person, or what seems to be. And so... We see all these seeds being dropped of like, oh, she's met this guy and he's a little bit unscrutable and he's a little bit sexy and he said absolutely for some reason. And um, <laughs> then, then we get to episode four and it's like the seeds of madness have begun to be sown. And if this mm-hmm. was, if like this was a modern day show, if this was a flea bag or one of the many things that's trying to be flea bag, that that yeah. would be what this is about. It would be like it would be a psychodrama. Yeah, yeah, a complete like a psycho comedy drama. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree, and I think. The other day, you and I both listened to that Ruby Wax interview with Louis Theroux, and there's something that she said in it that I can't stop thinking about where she was talking about why she married her husband. And she said, I married him because he was the first man where loving him didn't make me sick. And I just completely understood what kind of relationship she was talking about when she said that, of what it is to... And it's actually nothing to do with how the man is treating you a lot of the time. Mm. It's just who they are. And I think often it's an incompatibility of what both of you want. That there are relationships where loving someone means completely abandoning yourself. Yeah. Having your low, your, your self-esteem plummeting as if you were an adolescent again. Feeling anxious, feeling insecure, feeling the opposite of what everything love should make you feel. It's like an addict relationship. You keep going back to get these moments of extreme highs. And then in between the time where you can get your fix, 
you're in hell. And that's what I think this is. And the thing is, you're completely right. And also the moments where you're, even in the moments where you're getting your fix and like real addicts know this, is that you're already worried about not having it, right? Exactly. Like in, in totally. the, you're, when you're in the moment of it, so little of your brain power and presence is about enjoying what you have. It's about keeping and oh staying. That's so true. Do you know the worst example I have of this? is I remember being with a man who was so unavailable and he would never reply to me, he'd never pick up my calls. And then we had a date and he stayed over. And the next day I woke up and I looked at my phone to see if he'd messaged and I felt sick that he hadn't. And I turned around and I was like, he's here. And wow. it still it still wasn't enough. It yeah. still felt like he wasn't really there. And I was so habituated to this like place of, anxiety and insecurity that I almost couldn't believe the evidence was next to me that's that that's so it's quite a dark confession but that's what I think we're looking at in this relationship over this series as you said it's like it's someone in in an adult relationship and what's great about it is though this episode valley 20 something guys is the beginning of this drug metaphor that comes in and so her and big aren't even in this relationship yet she's there's a thing where like he's asked her to go for a drinks thing and she already doesn't really know what that means she's already confused she already feels adult she sort of makes Miranda listen to her uh, calling her own answering machine where he's cancelled the drink or he said he's going to be late and she says oh I feel so pathetic asking you this but can you please listen to this and tell Mm. me you know what you think and what the intonation Mm. is and Miranda's like okay and when you're watching it having when you freeze frame that scene and you see how like perplexed and annoyed Miranda is and how earnest Carrie is you kind of want to like shout at them like oh my god this is going to be the dynamic for the next six years this is like (laughs) run Miranda try and be the mayor of New York now save yourself (laughs) so true and then we totally I totally agree at that moment you're just like it is like a Shakespeare. If you've watched the whole series and you all the series and you go back to series one, it's like a Shakespearean level of dramatic <laughs> irony where you know there's gonna someone's gonna get killed. You're like, oh yeah, my god, it's so, run, it's run. so that it really, really is. And then yeah. we go straight into this thing where like you know, Big shows up at this thing and he's late and he can only stay ten minutes and then she then he leaves again and she ends up getting off with this like very cute, um, you know, titular twenty something guy called Sam. And um, I find him very attractive, actually. I thought he was a very... Do you? I really... I think I just like his, like, big, thick, creamy lasagna frame. <laughs> just a nice... Yeah, it's it's very you. And also, I think you like sort of wild tales of the past with his tongue piercing. I, I, there's something about her holding his tongue that feels very <laughs> me. Yeah, I thought so. I I didn't want to say. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that you didn't say it. Um, But so she gets into this thing with Sam where she's like constantly, she gets blown off by Big, who's the heroine, right? And then she, because Sam's a young guy and he's always out and he's always around, she kind of pops up at clubs he hangs out on and uh, and and just go go like snogs him for hours like it's a while before they yeah. even have sex but he's like this like yeah. methadone quick fix and she she like describes him as being totally quick fix. that's what it is that's yeah. exactly what it is he's like a counterfeit big yeah he really and in because it's so 
easy, the sort of, and this is like the big theme of this episode is this thing of like, (laughs) it's so difficult for 30 something women to date their contemporaries and they hate being messed around by the kind of, or the the old boars above them. And so you kind of have this young playpen of guys who will just worship you. Totally. And do you know what? It's like, it's really weird how it happens because I'm the exact same age as Carrie Bradshaw is in series one. I'm a single woman, which might sound like a threat to some of the <laughs> listeners or advertisement. You can choose. And it's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing where there's suddenly a pull to date men 10 years younger than you because they are so in a different part of life to you. They can't be competitive with you. They can't be emasculated by you. They can't be... They can't compare where you are in your lives. They they often adore you because there's something kind of mythical about you because you're a bit further ahead than them and you feel like you're a kind of different uh, creature to them, you know, working in a different world. Like, they can't believe how much loo roll you have in your house. They can't believe, you know, it, it's definitely real and it's really enticing and it's really exciting. Because, as you said, like men in their thirties are just fucking freaking out, yeah. Because commitment is suddenly, you know, very real. But the so. thing is, and like I, I know I've been in a relationship for the last seven years, so like I don't have the best, I don't, I don't have the best point of view on this particular subject, except for what I get through my friends. But it's like when you go on, when two thirty something people who don't have kids yet go on a date together. The date is mm-hmm. so loaded, it might as well be... So loaded. Would you like to start a small business with me? With a small That's investment totally of just true. 10 grand, you, you totally and I true. could possibly, within four to five years, return a small profit. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like You've hit the nail on the head. It's a heavy energy. It's like dates in your 30s, if you're a woman who wants a family with other men in their 30s, it's like, yeah, it feels like that. It feels like... There's like a domestic, unsaid, weekends at B&Q, potentially in our future, energy. And yeah. it's it can be quite grim. And suddenly you're like out with a 22-year-old who doesn't have a proper job. And he thinks you are the most powerful person, exciting person ever, because you live in a flat on your own and you have like a very small broken coffee machine. I'm literally, I, this by total accident, I'm literally referring to the two things that makes Carrie run a mile when she stays at his house, that he doesn't have a coffee machine and he doesn't have any loo roll. It's definitely a thing. Yeah. And it, and also the other, the line in this episode that I love so much is when she says, I've outgrown the men of my past, the boys of my past, but I haven't grown into the men of my future. And I just totally understand that hinterland in dating. And again, something happens when you get into your 30s where like, when you're in your 20s, older men are men in their mid-30s. When you get into your early mm. 30s, older men are middle-aged men. And they're often jaded or divorced or grumpy or suddenly very preoccupied with the notion of death and decay. Like <laughs> older men is suddenly a totally different yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. It's depressing. <laughs> I was about to say, I bet you wish you're single now. <laughs> Something I always say to you and I would like to say to the listeners if any of you are single and in your 30s is that something I said to you a lot actually 
a lot of fucking assholes are gonna get a lot of fucking wake-up calls in the next few years. Just because your best friend from school got married last year, she could be divorced in two. Do you know what I mean? All your friends who you think are happily married. I think about married, it all the time. You saying that to me goes round and round in my head. I would say on a daily basis. <laughs> it's so brilliant. Like you're like the the idea that people get settled and stay settled is so outdated yeah. and and like has never been true. And they're all yeah. going to end up on your couch eventually, weeping totally. that they've lost you know everything or whatever. And you know, do you know where you'll be? Fucking twenty two year old. So. <laughs> A lot of fucking assholes are going to get a lot of fucking wake-up calls. If I'm sounding slightly slurry now, it's because I'm now on my third Cosmopolitan. And I think I should also signpost to our listeners that the soundscaping of the crackling sound is my jewel vape that (laughs) I'm addicted to because I'm two weeks into giving up smoking, like Carrie in Series 4, but not because (laughs) a controlling carpenter has told me I have to. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So we've decided to look in detail at the scene that, according to the makers of the Sex and the City, was the first one on their table read that got the biggest reaction and also solidified what they thought would be the tone for the rest of the series. And it's a rare occasion where I actually agree with Michael Patrick King and Darren Starr because I think they're totally right. (laughs) I love this scene. And it is the scene where Charlotte York, I don't know why I'm using her full name, Charlotte has been (laughs) asked if she would like to do anal sex with her new boyfriend and she's freaking out and they have kind of a conference in the back of the cab. I think it's so important that we analyse this scene because, as you said, it is the scene that apparently landed the show and kind of created the show's DNA for the first time. But for anyone who's an, who's an aspiring screenwriter, I think it's such an important scene to examine because it's so short and it tells you everything you need to know about the psychology, history and future of these four characters. And I think there is such a tendency, I'm writing TV scripts at the moment, and there is such a tendency to avoid exposition. I think it's a writer's biggest fear. And something my producer keeps saying to me is stop worrying about being too expositional because you kind of can't be too expositional in these early in these early establishing scenes, you you can't be vague. You mm. can't leave room for interpretation of characterization. It's really important that you land it, 
loud and clear and you can do it in a way that is still really entertaining. And I think that this scene is just like the perfect example of how you do that. And the thing is, for many years, like TV was seen as like the ugly stepsister to film and the writing was rarely, apart from, you know, TV awards specifically, but in terms of like the wider culture was rarely awarded the same weight that film writing was awarded. But I think that this scene is like should be up there with like the great like Woody Allen dialogue scenes or the great Nora Ephron dialogue yeah, scenes like it's, I agree it's that zippy and we're gonna basically go through it word for word and also I think one of the smartest things that you have said about season one is that there is a world in which this could and should have been episode one scene one yeah yeah I think this could have been episode one scene one it, yeah. it gives us everything we need and I think everyone will agree once once they've heard us go through it. <laughs> okay, we're not going to act it. Don't worry. We're not going to act it. We're going to talk through it as if we're doing a sort of tech rehearsal. Yes, yes. So it begins with Carrie picking up Charlotte in a cab. And the first thing out of Carrie's mouth, and let's pretend we've never met these characters before. Yeah. She yeah, says, good idea. Okay, words are essential. Tell me exactly how he worded it. So immediately we have a writer who cares about words, wording, how he says things. She's going to spend the next six years talking and thinking about wording. Then Charlotte says, we've been seeing each other for a couple of weeks. I really like you. And tomorrow night after dinner, I want us to have anal sex. And then Carrie says, okay, next stop stop is going to be 62nd and Madison. And Charlotte says, 62nd and Madison? She says, we're picking up Miranda. No, God, no, Charlotte says. Carrie says, yes. And then we're picking up Samantha. And she says, oh, Carrie, no. And Carrie replies, you need all the girl support you can get. And I'm late for drinks with Big. Charlotte says, oh, that's great. And Carrie (laughs) says, even in her state of abject blackness, Charlotte was a dating optimist. So in that exchange, what you see is Carrie is, as we've already established, addicted to Big. She, he's the most important thing in her life. She needs the next fix. And yet the one thing that can usurp it is this not a fucking problem problem from her friend (laughs) to the point where she has to gather the Senate. She has to pick up all of them. It's not even discussed whether this is an option. And it's it's not even discussed whether the women are free or busy or not. Our friend is in need. We are having a conference. And again, that tells you everything you need to know about this group of women in their early 30s in this city. It's not about family. It's not about partners. It's about this group of people who help each other decide things and formulate who they are and shape their lives. These are the most important people. And what's so good as well and what we're about to see is that it operates like a real friendship group operates in the sense that not everyone gets the same level of tenderness. Like the way yeah. that Kristen Davis delivers that line where she's like, I really like you. And tomorrow after dinner, I want us to have anal sex. It's like, we already know, like, it's not, the show isn't saying that all straight women are disgraced by the idea of anal sex. They're saying mm-hmm. that this woman is. Yeah. And everyone, she, everyone who loves her gets that. Yeah. And totally. then Miranda enters. Do you want to take that? Miranda enters. And she says, it depends. How much do you like him? And Charlotte says, a lot. Dating a few months until somebody better comes along a lot or marrying and moving to East Hampton a lot. 
Charlotte says, I don't know, I'm not sure. And here's my favourite part. <laughs> well, you better get sure real quick. And Charlotte says, you're, Charlotte says, you're scaring me. And Carrie says, don't scare her. <laughs> so it's just, I think, again, this exchange is so perfect because you have this, Carrie is there as the facilitator. She's that anchor that, you know, all of them are, are bonded to. Miranda comes in because Carrie's not really giving advice. She's just there to be the person they kind of orbit around. Miranda comes in and it's like an episode of Law and Order. You establish that she's pragmatic. She's practical. She's straight talking. She's a lawyer. Like you couldn't establish that any quicker than in those few lines. And then she goes on to say, it's all about control. If he goes up there, there's going to be a shift in power. <laughs> Either he'll have the upper hand or you will. Now, there's a certain camp that believes that whoever holds the dick holds the power. And at that point, the, um, the Sikh taxi driver sort of looks back and uh, amazed at this conversation. And she goes, hello, you're driving. <laughs> and it's so, it's so like the obnoxious New Yorker yeah, who doesn't yeah. notice the cab driver until the point that they're doing something that she doesn't like kind of thing. Totally. And it is one of those many moments in Sex and City that you look back on that feels really, really uncomfortable. But it is also a moment that's very telling about a certain type of affluent Manhattan obnoxiousness that did exist in the 90s and still exists now, which basically ignores the majority of the population of the, of yeah. the city they live in. And and it's very much the world is my playground kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Even from someone as pragmatic and who's, you know, as moral as Miranda. Yeah. And then she says, the question is, if he goes up your butt, will he respect you more or less? That's the issue. <laughs> <laughs> Again, lawyer, analytical, go, you know, yeah. digging down as far as possible. Yeah. And then, and the thing is, it's like, as much as like, we all want to be sort of like, uh, as liberated sexual in her sexual politics as possible, she does have a point where it's in 100%. like one hundred percent. So much, and I hate this about heterosexual culture. So much, so much of like anything that's even mildly non-normative, heterosexual yeah. relationships will use it as sort of leverage over each other. And this sense of the kind of thing you can do with that girl is great, but it's not the girl I'll marry, kind of thing. And when she's talking about that Definitely. power imbalance. That is built into it, you know, and that's exactly what Charlotte fears. But it's that thing of like, if I give him this thing, will I become that girl? Or, you know, it's it's this whole push and pull. And that's what she's really frightened about, you know. Totally. And I actually think beyond the gendered aspect of power and revenge and shame that is so implicit in those few lines, there's also a comment about humanity and vulnerability and sex acts like I know that this isn't gender because I've spoken to exes and I've spoken to male friends about it that there are certain things that you do with someone someone when you're or you say to someone when you're deeply deeply in love and in a space of intimacy that is so unfathomable when you're not in it anymore Mm. when you think back on it you're like how could I have said or done those things and you exchange certain things you do certain things you tell each other certain things you have certain habits or rituals whatever 
that for the rest of your life, you have to live knowing that they have it over you and you wish you can take it back and you can't yeah. and you just know that they've got that over you. And the next time you see them, you know, you will be in a cafe Nero making yeah. small talk about each other's parents and you have to sit with this knowledge that you both have burgled something from each other, This yeah. from this deep, secret, sacred place. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough as you get older knowing all the things that people have over you. I yeah. can't think about it for too long. <laughs> it's horrible. And I remember that, like, I, I immigrated when I was 21. I remember sitting on the plane and like I had quite, like, a, you know, a storied <laughs> sex life when I was a teenager. And I remember looking <laughs> out... Storied. <laughs> An authored sex life. Um, I remember looking out of the um, of the plane window and just thinking, having this big sort of exhale and going, they're all dead now. <laughs> and that's how I felt. That's literally what I said to myself and literally what I felt. I was like, they can't get me in England because they don't live there. <laughs> and it's like... Well, that must have been magic. It was gorgeous. And you know, what yeah. the thing is, is that I had very unhealthy relationships when I was that age. And whether it's through age or the they're all dead now revelation I've only ever had sort of nice relationships with people since you know even if it was casual I've, it's been yeah. quite, quite healthy um, yeah. but then then Samantha enters <laughs> Samantha enters and we must footnote this comment by saying and don't worry we will return to it because I have many many thoughts Samantha earlier in this episode because she's fucking a 20 something and that guy is how Carrie meets Sam, her 20-something. Samantha talks about how much wild sex they've had. And there's a montage, like a jump cut mon- montage of all the different positions they've had sex in. And she says, I fucked him. And it mm. is the only reference in all of Sex in the City you ever see of pegging. It's mad. And it lasts for two seconds. Don't worry. We're going to put a peg in Peggy and we're going to return to it. <laughs> But this is like really important, I think, to remember that this is in the same episode that Samantha has fucked a guy with a strap on. She is getting into a cab to indulge Charlotte's fears about whether she should have anal with her boyfriend. Yeah. And it's that thing that we got that we mentioned, which is that like in in real friendship groups, not everyone is treated the same. There is no such thing as a friendship group is like, well, we all think this and we all do this. It's like some people get kid gloves and some people are allowed to access a franker tier of information. Exactly. And she she says in like typical sort of like drag queen tone, (laughs) like front, back, who cares? A hole is a hole. (laughs) Carrie, can I quote you? Don't be so judgmental. You could use a little back door. And then Charlotte, I am not a whole. Carrie says, honey, we know. And then Samantha says, all I'm saying is that this is a physical expression that the body was designed to experience. And P.S. It's fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Again, everything you need to know about Samantha. Yeah. She's liberal. She's, as Caroline enigmatically described earlier of her own sex life, storied. (laughs) (laughs) she's someone who has you know had a lot of experiences and has this inherently liberal outlook and then charlotte says the line that i think tells you everything you ever need to know about charlotte which is 
what are you talking about? I went to Smith. <laughs> and I think that tells you everything you need to know about Charlotte because it was the podcaster, Brett Goldstein, who said to me, he does a films podcast, and I uh, went onto it and talked about Sex and the City, the first movie, obviously. And he said, all the men in Sex and the City are sent to the women for them, all the big loves of their lives are sent to them for them to understand something about themselves. And the big karmic lesson that Charlotte is here to learn in this life is that stuff doesn't matter. The material indicators, the surface indicators of things don't matter. It doesn't matter how big your apartment on the Upper East Side is. It doesn't matter how handsome you are. Or how proper you are or how mannered you are. Yeah. Who, like, the true essence of how funny you are and how sexy you are and how good you are is something much more important, like, much deeper and much less easy to see manifest on the outside. So her saying, I went to Smith, is just so important because she's basically saying, I went to a, you know, prob- I don't know, that's probably an Ivy, Ivy League, university. I guess. Yeah. yeah, she's saying people who go to the universities that I went to don't have anal sex. It's, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's so silly and it's so great. And then obviously Samantha comes right back with, look, I'm just saying with the right guy and the right lubricant. And at that moment, the cab stalls and they're all jolted forward. And Charlotte says, what was that? And they all go, a preview. A preview. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And then what's nice about that scene is um, the sort of the, the taxi driver who has been sort of sidelined, gets sort of the, has the biggest laugh of all kind of yeah. thing. He's yeah, sort of yeah. loving this chat. And that is, that is the famous anal sex cab scene. And I think, you know, with every reading becomes richer to me. (laughs) I totally agree. I totally agree. Right, now back to the pegging. Right, what else do you have to say about pegging that you have not yet said? So, in preparation for this podcast, I have written down... You peg someone? I peg someone in research. (laughs) And I'm very excited to introduce him now. No, um, I have written down these statements that sort of read like really bad thesis titles for my parallel life where I'm a media studies student Mm -hmm. doing a PhD on Sex and the City. One of them is the ongoing sadness of Miranda's floating necklaces. Awful, the floating necklaces... More of a season two thing, but go on. We'll get to them. And one of the other ones, there are many dissertation titles, we'll work our way through. One of the other ones is the absence of pegging in Sex in the City. And more broadly, the absence of strap-ons in Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Throughout all these breakdowns of the series, we will go through the things <laughs> that they have left out. Like, like of the sexual menu. Mm. And actually, I have to say, when I really think about it, they did a fucking good job. They covered most things. Mm. If you were to go through the you porn categories, they vaguely, in a very vanilla way, touched on most of them. It is baffling to me that they never properly touched on pegging, particularly because all Samantha said was that she wanted to fuck like a man. That's so true. And we have that one reference to her in this episode with the pegging. Which is literally two seconds long. Two seconds. 
And then we have um, season three or four, whenever she gets with Maria. And they have, there's a brief sort of thing about strap-ons towards the end of their relationship. But yeah, oh, you, would, you would think there would be more about sort of like phallic imagery yeah. and, and sort of that kind. You would think it'd be more. Also period sex, you would think there would be more of. Or at least a discussion of. There's no of, period sex. Which leads me to an interesting theme, ring, 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 of the, uh, <laughs> of the show, which is um, this sort of dual thing of like a absolute frankness about sex and sexuality that is staged against a slight kind of fear of the female body, which I think does... Not fear, that's unfair. I don't want to go to this sort of cliched thing where we're saying that, like, you know, gay men don't care about women's bodies, but perhaps that, like, Darren Starr and Michael Patrick King weren't necessarily thinking about these things. Yeah. Or whatever. This thing of, like, you know, why isn't there a discussion of something like period sex? Why is it that, you know, things like farts are such a big deal to them? Yeah. There's this kind of thing where their bodies for sex are very normal. That's very normal and natural, but their bodies otherwise are... Embarrassing. Are embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. I remember, and I think this is probably a signifier of you being in in lots of long-term relationships, I remember you telling me how mental you found that fart episode. And look, I found it mental as well, but I think you found it particularly mental. I do think that is like, so when we talked about earlier on that, that moment where um, she makes Miranda listen to the phone call to the answering machine message, that is like the the sort of seed of like, oh, this character is about to go mental. I think when that sort of unraveling is in full flow is in that episode, The Drought, which is where she accidentally farts in bed while her and Big are cuddling. She gets under the covers. He says, it's going to be worse there. And then she runs out, pegs it out, falls over. Hilarious. Then it's this thing of like, she she's a bit freaked out about it. She feels really embarrassed. And then the next day she's having, I love this so much. She, they're having Chinese at his apartment. And um, oh, it's she, so says, good. she says, um, you know, I think there's a new Hopper exhibit at the Met this weekend. Do you want to go? That thing when you're trying to be like a proper lady. I love when like Carrie's pretending to be a proper human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we said, and as we said, we see it. We recognize it. We see it. We recognize it. We affirm it. Um, and he, she, he goes, yeah, yeah, can you pass me the duck sauce? And sort of she reaches over and then he puts a whoopee cushion under her ass. She sits on it. They both laugh. It's funny. But then that <laughs> night they don't have sex. And then they don't have sex a couple of nights for a couple of nights or whatever. And in the timeline of the show, they're supposed to have been going out like, you know, eight or nine months at this yeah, point. Yeah, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Which like, you know. Pretty normal, I would say, for sex to start peeling off at that point. But because she's yeah. a nutter, um, <laughs> and she's gone nuts at this point, she sort of all hinges it on this fart that she does, and yeah. she just kind of yeah. spins out and spins out. And what's good is, and what I always say in defense of Sex and the City when people are really shitty about it, and particularly the kind of carry bashing thing, I always say, you know, the show knows she's annoying. Like, characters yeah. are frequently exasperated by her, including her friends, especially Miranda. And she and, she, and at one point, Miranda's like, Carrie, I can't hear about the fucking fart again. Yeah, yeah. And we Carrie sort of, Miranda. like, bashes her fist on the table and she's like, well, if it's not that, then what is it? And it reminds me of this thing where when you're in those relationships with those men who just make you sick, like, they, like, make you ill. Yeah. Um... You, especially when you're young, 
you think, because the only time that that person feels truly focused on you is when you're having sex. You think that when they're you're not having sex, they're not focused on you, which means they don't love you, which means you have nothing that you're actively giving the relationship, which means you could be abandoned at any time. That is so fucking smart. And I think it gets to the absolute centre of the Carrie psychology of how she relates to not just that man, but all men, I think. And I think that actually leads on quite well to something I wanted to to discuss, which is there's this weird thing in series one where Carrie has all these male friends, these Mm. random male Mm. friends. And another thing that you've said, I mean, there's a bit of a pattern here. Basically, everything you say about sex in the city, I think, is the wisest thing I've ever heard (laughs) in my entire life. Um, but another amazingly smart thing you said is Carrie doesn't know how to relate to men. Like, no. of course, not only would she not have male friends, like, of course, her only way that she knows of feeling, and you're so right, and I just like, understand that, particularly with my younger self, so much, that idea of the only time where I have all of them mm. is in coitus, so I have to somehow... <laughs> emulate that at all times so it's not enough I can't just be someone like you know chilling out or being low-key or being goofy or being I have to replicate that space where I have all of him yeah and where you can continue sort of being a mystery or something and it's just yeah yeah and uh, and it's sort of it's 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 represented so I do think that like that dried episode is the sort of the great unfurling of our of our protagonist but I do think that rears its head again with another episode I think is great which is Secret Sex which is the episode where it's the the debut of the naked dress um, oh yeah off where yeah. she's finally going on a date with Big and she shows up in this fucking gorgeous tiny tiny dress with her big old fur coat over it and they obviously like just shag immediately and they spend the next two days just like shagging all over his floor. And um, weirdly, it's, it's it's such an interesting episode because it's this penultimate, she's reached this climax with, with Big and they've finally done it. We've been teased on it for episodes and episodes. It's finally happening. But then also her work life, which we really haven't heard all that much about coming up to this, also reaches this culmination whereby she's on a bus ad Mm. And, and and this is why she has this beautiful dress because she's posed for it. This dress is so perfect. I mean, I don't know anyone who would look good in this dress. No, no. How would you describe it? It's like a proper 90s Armani spaghetti strap. It's so low at the back, it almost shows her ass crack. Yeah, I think it's like a sheer strap as well. I think it's literally like transparent straps. And yeah. it's just a nude slip that would make any skin tone look washed out. And yet it's so, and it just clings to this like, this body that I've spent effectively the last 17 years wishing I had, which is Sarah Jessica Parker's body, which I think when I have my um, most toxic goggles on, that's the body I wish I had. Do you know what I mean? When like all the body positivity Instagrams are filtered away to nothing and it's just me 
in front of the mirror. I wish I had Jessica Parker's body, you know? Uh, and it's it's so beautiful on her. And then, but then she has this sort of, so it's this weird thing of like both a romantic and a professional moment culminating in the same episode. And both of them are as rife with excitement and anxiety as each other. Yeah. So she yeah. stands on a street with the yeah. girls as the bus comes past. And they're, and it's it's the thing, it's so relatable where it's like the thing where your friends are being silly and they're being there for you. And they're like, oh, yeah. we're, we all have our party hats on. We're all going to watch your bus go by. And then the minute the bus rounds the corner, and bear in mind this is after she's had sex with Big and she already feels anxious about the fact that she wore this kind of revealing dress and they immediately had sex. They didn't make it to dinner. And now he's taking her to shitty Chinese restaurants. Immediately she sees this big dick just drawn on her head. So good. In permanent marker. So and I think good. it's just so, it's so good because I felt like when I watch that scene, I feel like I'm standing on that street corner with you. <laughs> Do you? Because like, there's been so many times oh, where you've had, you. you've had these moments happen where you've had a huge photo shoot or an award or an event or something with a high-low happens and, you know, I see a stunning picture of you in the Sunday time style or something like that. And I text you and I'm like, oh, babe, you look amazing. You're on top of the world. And you text me back almost immediately mm, <laughs> saying, thanks, it. feel like shit and want to kill myself. Hate yeah, <laughs> yeah, hate it. Hate hate it. it. And it, it, it's this yeah. extremely prescient thing where it talks about not just female sex and female shame, but female excellence and how being a public person, how hard that is on a human being. <laughs> I love so much that you said that because, and it's it's also prescient because it looks at the branding of writers, which has obviously existed for a really long time, particularly the female branding of writers, but I think has become, has kind of clarified and crystallised uh, with the dawn of social media. Dawn of social media, I, I really do sound like a Gen X Old, man, old I? man. Old, old man. Now going to start boring on about the left and cancel culture <laughs> <laughs> and freedom of speech. Uh, no, yeah, it is definitely. I mean, look, it's a complicated thing to talk about because it's. I hope it goes without saying that having a profile like that is something that I am very, very grateful for, and I know I'm very lucky to have it. But I identified so much rewatching that episode. Mm age 32, because I think that there's like a battle that I've always found is, you know, when you see Carrie at her desk and she's writing about sex and she's being cute and she's owning her sexuality and and she's feeling empowered and emancipated and autonomous and like she's writing her own narrative and she's smoking a fag and she's writing, yeah, all about love and sex and men and women. When that intersects with the world that we live in, yeah, it can be quite nasty sometimes. And I suppose like, you know, I've been doing it since I was 26 because that's when I had that dating column for the first time. And on the kind of lightest end of that spectrum, it's, you know, I suppose peers, you know, people I work with or co friends of colleagues, whatever, saying online, like, how do we take this woman seriously because she's wearing this or she's marketing herself like that? And then on the most extreme end of it, looking at the kind of graffiti dick on your face in 20, yeah. whatever it was when I first started writing that column, 2014, it's like men on Reddit talking about whether they want to rape you or not. You know, like it's suddenly there's this moment of being like, oh, what I thought I was doing 
Maybe I had too much good faith. Maybe I didn't really take in the reality of where the world is and I didn't really take in how much that negates what my work is and how serious I am about my work. And it also, something I now find quite difficult is I want to be a single woman like any other single woman in her 30s. Like I want to have an Instagram account where I put up like cute little thirst traps once a year when I'm on holiday or I want to, you know, celebrate my femininity or celebrate whatever, all that fun stuff that that you get to do when you're a woman in your 30s. I want to do that, but like, I, I can't, like every time I do that now, I'm also aware that I have, that my platform isn't really for that. It's for people who want to know about my work. So there's this like, which is why I send you messages saying, I, I hate those pictures. It's like just a very weird tension that I'm still trying to, I'm still trying yeah. to work out. And I think, yeah, she explores that so, so well in that moment. And what's interesting as well, and what's just occurred to me, is that how gendered that experience is. Because if you think about that bus ad, it's her in the, looking beautiful in the beautiful dress, lying on a bed. And the caption is, Carrie Bradshaw knows great sex, asterisk, and isn't afraid to ask. Which is a, a play on the Woody Allen film, Everything You've Ever Wanted to Know About Sex and Were Too Afraid to Ask. And, like, this episode, what, it's 1998 or 9 or whatever? Like, Woody Allen has already made a string of movies. We don't know, you know, that much about his, the allegations against him. A string of movies about him romancing teenage girls. I'm pretty sure he's already left his wife for his stepdaughter, Sunyi Previn. And yet Carrie Bradshaw's the one with the dick on her head in Times yeah. Square. <laughs> you know? So, so true. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So much, like, I don't even know how much Candice Bushnell was aware of that when she was writing it. I'm sure she was very aware. I think we forget as well, you know, when she first started writing that column, she was 35. So when this show was being made, she was probably nearing 40. Mm. So this is stuff that she's probably, like, experienced for quite a long time and has quite a lot to say about, about what it is to be a writer, professional writer, a respected writer, talented writer, and how you balance that with being a woman. Yeah. Uh, I respect what Karen- Candace Bushnell does very much, even though Candace Bushnell hates me. <laughs> oh, we need to talk about this. We've got to talk about it, mate. Can we, please? We no, have it's to so, talk about it. It's so funny and so stupid. And you remember at the top of the episode when we talked about... um. <laughs> about petty Twitter conversations that we never get over. <laughs> well, that was the gun in Act 1 that's going off in Act 3. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say this really briefly. Uh, Go on. So a few years ago, I think it was maybe last year, actually, I was at home in Ireland. I think I was having a little bit of a mental health moment and uh, doing the thing I often do when I'm um, not really feeling my mental state, which is re-watching episode Sex and City. Mm-hmm. I watched one I was watching one of my favorite episodes, which is the one where she gets that great review in the New York Times and the same week she comes across Nina Katz, aka the face love. girl. Yeah. Love it. Can't wait till we get to it. And um I did the thing that I often do when I'm not in a great mental health way, which is I um started sort of making extremely intense tweets about this episode and my basically this podcast but in tweet form and what I said in the tweets was um, uh, as somebody who something like to the, to the effect of 
As somebody who has recently put out a book, I can really relate to this sense that Carrie has has an increased awareness of the amount of people who are looking at her and forming opinions of her. And even though yeah. the review from Michiko Kakatani is great, the idea that she's still receiving reviews from people is one that feels very real to me or something like that. I did not tag Candace Bushnell. I don't think Candace Bushnell followed me. She certainly doesn't now. Um, but suddenly, about 20 minutes later, and and this these tweets, by the way, got zero retweets. <laughs> She searches her name. She, she she's searches, like, look, we've all been there, girl. We get. She's searching her name. I mean, I didn't mention her name, but she tweets me saying, "How the fuck did she find it then?" I have no idea. It's a it's a puzzle to me still. Um, she she tweets me saying, "Caroline, full stop." These tweets, <laughs> <laughs> these tweets are so annoying. <laughs> And then she said something like, there was no review in the New York Times, not to mention a positive one. Basically, the whole kind of vibe was grow up, you dumb bitch, <laughs> and stop I tweeting don't about get this, this show. I don't, what did you reply? Something, I was so weirded out and hurt by the whole thing. I would have been so hurt. I would have been so hurt. I was just like... I, I, I think it was something to the effect of like, I think you've misunderstood what I mean here. But then when I actually looked into it, I realized that her most recent book had been badly reviewed by the New York Times. Okay. And I think she had searched Sex and the City review or something like I that. I see, because, I see, I see. And maybe had stumbled on this conversation and it hit her on a weird day. But either way, it was a puzzling, <laughs> puzzling communication. <laughs> There's another episode that I'd like us to talk about briefly before we start wrapping up, which is the baby shower episode, which is just called the baby shower, I think. It's towards the end. And you pointed out something as we were watching it over WhatsApp, of course, um, <laughs> that it's so weird that, like, the not weird, but just uncommon that we have these four characters, three of whom want long-term love and and marriage and family and it's taken until like episode 10 for them to even bring up babies yeah yeah and the fact that it comes up so seldomly throughout the series yeah it's radical and actually do you know what I can only realize how radical it is now because I remember when I was a younger woman watching it and being like, oh, why is Charlotte fucking going Mm. on about babies and finding a husband and fertility like come on and actually watching it now as a 32 year old single woman who yeah wants to have a family it's so amazing how much that is not a baseline anxiety it's so rarely mentioned and the thing that I think is radical maybe too much for stretch refreshing is that it's not that it's not there they have these moments where you know when Miranda finds out she has a lazy ovary when Charlotte stamps her fist on the table and says, I've been dating since I was 15. Where is he? Which is a (laughs) wonderful moment. Even though it is there occasionally, the thing that I find so powerful is that it is never, ever discussed in reference to whether they should be in a relationship or stay in a relationship. Yeah. 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 Complete. Which is is like a, a, a conversation that happens in real life, right? Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the thing about that baby shower episode is what it also happens again when their friend Brooke gets married earlier in the season, where there's this thing when that group of women who we are, there are girls, right? By the, you know, that we feel like we're in that group of friends with them because it's so inclusive. And the, even the way it's shot, it feels like you're sitting in the cab or at brunch with them. And they're our girls and we and we love them, but then when we see them in situations where they're amongst married, settled, or like familyed women, yeah. they are dressed differently, they're shown differently. We see them in mm-hmm. the wide as a four. They're often totally. dressed in black. Like at yeah. that wedding, they're all wearing black and Carrie calls them the witches of Eastwick. And and then by contrast, all the married women around them are always like in these like blonde bobs with these kind of colourful cardigan outfits. Yeah. And yeah. they're always sort of the way they're represented is so strange. And then they they show up at this sort of uh, Connecticut baby shower. I love Samantha in it so much when she's like wearing that like crop top and black leather. Cardigan, crop top cardigan with no bra. Ugh. And just so like. Good. She's just obsessed with the idea of like showing off how flat her stomach is among the pregnant, like yeah. her pregnant rival, which is so petty, but I love it. <laughs> um. And and during this as well, Carrie Carrie's period is a week late. Mm. And so she's going to this baby shower being like, oh, is this my future? Also, another micro detail about that episode I love so much is that they rent a car to go to Connecticut and then they all sit in the back seat. And it's that thing of like... None of them know how to drive. Yeah, people who live yeah. in cities who can't drive, you know. And then I think <laughs> Carrie drives eventually, um, which I find so cute. Uh and they have this whole thing of like this this very played out thing about mothers and and how it all feels like a cult and all that thing. And we've kind of heard that narrative before, but it's different because we have Carrie who's not sure whether she's got to be in this club. And then afterwards, they kind of like decamp at this pub or this bar. And Carrie's like, you know, I know plenty of great women who have great careers and they have families and they're in the city. And all the girls just say, name one. Which is a conversation I have constantly. Yeah. I just think it's it's so well done. It's so good. And it also it keys into the final theme klaxon <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> it keys into, I think, the most potent theme of the whole series, which I have to say as well is my least favorite. The series we're talking about in this episode is my least favorite series. Mm, but same. I think it's... It's something that they establish in this series and explore in such an interesting way is the potential humiliation of femininity, of the state of being female. And you really get the sense through these 12 episodes that these are women who have constructed their identities and their lifestyles, not only defensively to react against the Connecticut women in their pale clothes who are treating them with, you know, sympathy or pity. Disdain or fear. Yeah, fear, that they've constructed it out of survival. And that's why Carrie has these completely random male friends that we never see again. That's why they're drinking so much. That's why they're paying, playing poker at Carrie's mm. flat. That's why you have Carrie saying, I'm not the marrying kind, like three times, I think, over mm. the course of all the series. Like you establish that these are women who feel like they are actively making a choice that they want to avoid the potential vulnerability, humiliation, desperation, whatever, that that traditional constructs of femininity or 
heterosexual partnerships sometimes can engender. Yeah, Carrie's almost like one of those women who wants to be like, if she wants to be anyone's wife, she wants to be like Hemingway's wife, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She wants to be shooting and drinking with the boys and being adorable, you know? Again, Um, hard relate, Carrie. (laughs) We all want to be Hemingway's coolest wife. We all want to be Hemingway's coolest wife. And we ain't, babe. We're never gonna be. Which is why it's so frustrating for her when she is able to like watch herself be this dumb bitch who just spends all day sipping dumb bitch juice, you know? It's just... Yeah, yeah it's mortifying. There's this bit <laughs> at the end of that episode that I find oddly really moving and it kind of made me well up a bit when I watched it recently, which is at the end when she still doesn't know how she feels about motherhood, she goes to a playground and she just watches kids play for a while and she this like beautiful little like blonde three year old runs up to her and they have a little interaction and it's like oh hi blah and the mother comes over and she is the mother that Carrie wanted to think of when she yeah. was in the bar with the girls that like that cool urban mom who's like wearing oddly chic dungarees and seems to have yeah. a very full life and loves yeah. her kid and they yeah. all have this very cute interaction. And then Carrie leaves the park and she's like walking and it's like this beautiful spring day and she's clicking down the street and she's having a fag. And then the voiceover just says, on the way home, I got my period. And we never find out. I find that so moving as well, weirdly. Why is that? Like, I feel like like I'm welling up a little bit. I'm misting slightly. I know, me too. Do you know why I think it is? I think it's one of those things like Sex in the City, my relationship to it has changed so much with every year that I get older and I think I think that there's something about that casual statement of fact it's this it it basically makes you realize the thing that all you know all women in their in their 30s who want to have kids thinking about all the time of like what will my life be like if I have a child what will my life be like if I don't have a child and the sad fact is I've just learned having seen so many of my best friends have kids and, you know, so many of my best friends not have kids is like, this is the kind of fortune of life, the the pendulum swinging, like mm. there's a world in which you have a child and you adapt and you're really happy and it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. And there's a world in which you don't have a child and you adapt and it's so true. The best thing that ever happened to you. Do you know what I mean? Like that, there's not, I think we want to think of a certain type of life being the thing that delivers us eternal satisfaction. And I think you get into your 30s and you realise that doesn't exist. There are just lots of different lives that you can have and you'd probably find a way to be happy in all of them. And that, it's it's so true. And the, and the fact that, because every time I have those considerations, when I'm having like, you know, one of those months where I'm feeling a bit, you know, jittery about... <laughs> But when my period's going to come and I know I haven't been a responsible girl, um, where I'm like, oh God, like what would happen? What would I do? What would mm. all this, all that? And I and I always want it to come down to a binary of like the right and the wrong decision. Mm. When obviously, when there is no right or wrong decision and that... All Particularly that, at this time of life. Yeah, completely. And all that exists really is the fact that if you choose one thing, you can't have the other, you know? Exactly. If you choose a child, you will no longer be a woman who can act independently and as if you have no one to answer to. And if you choose your single life, you'll never, you know, know that that excruciating love Mm. that defines so many people. And Mm. that's what makes it so, you know, the great 
the great drama of every woman's life, I think. So the first item on our roundup is man of the season. And you and I have agreed on this in advance, who we think our man of the season is. And I think uh, listeners will be somewhat surprised. (laughs) There's absolutely no debate for me here. No debate between either of us. So man of the season is season one, episode three, Tommy the doorman. (laughs) So Tommy the doorman is Charlotte's doorman. And there's a party that the girls all go to. Samantha gets fucked up drunk. She goes back to Charlotte's apartment. And then on the door, there is the most gorgeous man who I've sen- we've since discovered is played by Carl Geary, who went on to be the novelist of the book Montpellier Parade. But that doesn't matter because what matters is <laughs> in 1998... <laughs> Carl Geary was the hottest man I've ever seen. Hottest man I've ever seen. It's unbelievable. Like, what is happening here? So, Samantha goes upstairs to Charlotte's, gets drunk. She comes back downstairs in her lingerie and says to Tommy, who's smoking outside, can I have a light? And he gives her a light because he's already smoking. And then she says, can I have a kiss? And she opens up her jacket and it's, I think it's the first like body shot of Kim Cattrall mm-hmm. of the season. And we kind of just drink in how unbelievably gorgeous she is. Like she looks like Veronica Lake. So fit. She's a yeah. starlet, the likes of which we just don't see anymore on our screens. And he just pulls her in so closely at everything about him. I think it's something to do with the sort of paleness or whatever. He just looks so cold he's out there it looks like winter he pulls her in and they have this kiss and it's it's a weird thing to talk about because it's so rare to see a kiss on screen that you actually want to have in real life so true and that's how good this kiss is it's like so warm and it's like not that kind of mashed together lip wipe that you often get with on screen kisses it's a proper snog horny Horny. It's so good. And actually, I was quite surprised because I very much fall hook, line and sinker for what I will broadly call Irish whimsy. Yeah, which I hate. Prepackaged and sold out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hate it. To other countries with it. Like, if I meet any Irish man in a pub in London and he starts talking about home, I'm just like... Yeah, and I, I can't. You, you, she hates it. I, she hates it. Of course, it. I do because I, I grew up on it, and I see through it in an instant. And yet, Tommy, <laughs> and yet, when Tommy starts talking about how much he's missing home and the touch of a woman, <laughs> I was like, "This is too much for Caroline. She's gonna fucking hate it." Do you know what? And yet here you are. Here I am, absolutely dropping him. Uh, and do you know why it is as well? It's because for, okay, first of all, he's just so beautiful. <laughs> And he, he looks like Gregory Peck. He's so hot. I think Marlon Brando, a young Marlon Brando. Yeah, big full lips. Yeah. And like that sort of, not just the full lips, but like the kind of cold bitten lips kind of thing. This, and mm. sort of the, mm. the big eyebrows. And it just, he looks like old Hollywood. And 
as well, because he looks so young and he's there in his uniform, I just believe it. I believe that he's like 22 and like living on his brother's floor and he's from some county outside of Dublin, like Kildare or something. And like, he's just (laughs) miserable there. And and he's been there like... He, he meant to come for a summer and the summer turned into winter and now it's not fun anymore. And, yeah. w- and and when he says, like, I wanted to feel the touch of a woman, which is the stupidest line ever. And it's like something from the 20s. I, the, the, the actor, he just delivers it. He should have been a recurring character. I think it would be a lie if if we didn't explicitly say to our listeners that Caroline and I have Googled the marital status and whereabouts of the actor <laughs> i i would rather not get into it <laughs> let's not go into it that's because, what it needs to be said because i then followed him on twitter realized that because we're both irish authors we have a lot of people in common he followed me back presumably because he thinks we have business to discuss now i feel very embarrassed <laughs> like a boy in school has looked at me um <laughs> But weird, the weirdest thing about the Tommy storyline, and it makes me presume that Tommy was supposed to be a larger story. Oh, go on, tell me. Was the fact that Carrie's, and probably it's a nominee for Clanger of the season for for Carrie. Her sign off for the whole thing is, may, oh, so weird. Maybe yeah. the war between married people and single people is like the war in Northern in Ireland. Northern Ireland, it. Awful. This is something that Carrie is saying, not in 2021, where like, you know, enough of the conflict has died down for us to make stupid jokes about it. Barely. She said this in 1998, a year after the Oma bombings. And that is (laughs) the last line of the whole episode. And Ireland has not been touched on at all. Except for Tommy the Irish Dorman. Yeah. Also, I think we have to touch on one of our many theories we're going to touch on throughout this mini series, which is this episode is the first time one of the characters from Sex in the City gets trashed. It's yes. Samantha. Samantha is everyone's favorite character. Caroline and I have devised a very intricate and sophisticated theory. That basically... What makes for likable public figures? They love the sesh. Mm. If someone loves the sesh, they are untouchable. And you can tell. If someone loves the sesh and everyone can tell. Yeah. Adele loves the sesh. No one's coming after Adele. Jennifer Lawrence loves the sesh. Yeah. She loves the sesh. No one will ever, ever... doesn't matter what she does. She loves the sesh. We can forgive her. The abiding popularity of Nigel Farage is down to the fact that he loves the sesh. He loves the sesh. He's a hateful man and he loves the sesh. And that's confusing. What? <laughs> Why? It's very confusing for all of us. Why is Samantha everyone's favourite? She loves the sesh. She, she loves, loves the sesh. The sesh. <laughs> I'm glad we've uh, made that theory public. Um, outfit of the season this week, I think, is going to be a very quick one, which is the naked dress. With the fair fur coat. It has to be the naked dress. Particularly when she's wearing it with her vintage fur coat, which when I read a script from series one is described as her ratty vintage coat. Mm. 
And I'm like, oh, that's what they were trying to do there. That's what they were trying to do. And they, they did were trying it. to carry a woman of the people with her furs. They abandoned that quite quickly. <laughs> which brings us to the Carrie clangor of the season, which you can explain to us now. Carrie has walked past a church on a Sunday. She sees Big reverently minding his own business with his mother and he takes his mother to church every Sunday. He, I think, very politely, leaves his mother, goes up to Carrie and says, this is what I do with my mum every Sunday. Carrie then becomes completely obsessed with the fact that she has to go to church, specifically church with his mother in this ritual. Yeah, not, that he, not that he should meet his mother, just that no. they should go together. In this ritual that he's very explicitly said is something they do, just the two of them, that she has to do that with them for it to be confirmed that he's committed to her. He gently says, no, that's not going to happen. She decides to rope in Miranda. The two of them turn up. They're meant to be incognito on a Sunday, both looking like they're dressed up for a sort of church secret cinema event. <laughs> like they're... <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's wearing like an A-line dress, lace gloves. She's dressed like a Baptist church lady. Like she's gotten the wrong yeah. com- like costume prompt for this particular yeah. kind of church. Miranda's wearing a tangerine bonnet. <laughs> they go to the church... <laughs> At the beginning of the service, Carrie picks up a hymn book with her lace gloves. The hymn book slips and it clatters down onto the floor. Everyone turns around, including Big, who looks quizzically at her. So that that alone should be clangor of the season. What makes it even worse is instead of going, I've really embarrassed myself, I should probably leave now. She then waits for Big and his mother to leave the church so she can meet Big's mother. And then, not even then, they have this sort of like polite interaction where the mother is like very waspy and very Bunny McDougal prototype. It's like, oh, hello. Oh, I must be saying goodbye to the pastor. And then, oh, yeah, also Big says like, this is my friend Carrie. And Carrie, obviously, as soon as the mother is out of the frame, takes great affront to this and is like, well, I'm your friend. And it's like, not addressing the fact that she has gate-crashed what is a spiritual, <laughs> personal, and explicitly family-only event. It's explicitly private. <laughs> and I have to, at this point, duff my cap to Ella Risbridger, who watched Sex in the City for the first time last year. And Caroline said, what do you think of series one? And Ella replied... She replied, I don't understand why she doesn't leave the poor man alone. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's the whole show, Ella. Like, you've got it in one. That's the whole show. (laughs) And I think, like, they start to seed it in the episode of their first date where they have two dates and Carrie turns up at his house drunk in the middle of the night after two dates saying basically are you in or are you out which I feel like at this point we don't need to have to say but just to check it like no judgment Carrie I get it we get it but it's intense it's intense and that kind of addict relationship that we talked about earlier I think it all culminates (laughs) why won't she leave this poor man alone why can she not (laughs) stop herself from getting this fixed, it all culminates in this awful exchange with her and Big and Big's mother. 
Yeah. In the church. And she has this thing of like, well, I'm just a friend to you. And he says, like, to be fair, not a great thing to say, but he's exasperated and she's being a loon. Uh, he says, my my mother doesn't need to meet another girlfriend. Which, yeah. I'm going to say, if you're a man in your mid-40s and you've been married once and you're kind of a known womanizer, I think fair enough. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. fair. I'd react very badly to that. But I yeah, also wouldn't stalk them I. at a church. <laughs> I wouldn't stalk them at a church. And also, I think something so telling about this exchange, which Caroline and I have an eagle eye for, for the, all of Sex and City, is that there is so much criticism thrown at Sex and City and it being created by gay men that you can just tell that it's like written with yeah. a gay male gaze. Which most of the time I resent because Michael Patrick I resent yeah. left quite quickly and also it underwrites like most of that writer's women's women. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's, it's something that Caroline and I don't buy into. The one thing that we do buy into where you can tell that this is definitely a gay man has come up with this idea is the fact that they are often the girls, often just the two of them in a really busy party or strange atmosphere and one of them will just leave or will yeah. ask the other one to leave and there's absolutely no drama. So Carrie has not only made Miranda a very hardworking lawyer, yeah. Wake up very early on a Sunday, put on a tangerine bonnet. And also in the intro to the scene says, she, you know, we, we'll get we'll get eggs afterwards. So she's only come to this thing with the proviso that they're going to get breakfast later. I and then she that. says, and then she says, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. When Big and his mum are coming down, she's waiting for Big and his mum. She was like, I'm okay, sweetie. Just go, just go. And Miranda's like, okay, fine. Okay. And this, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's yeah. just this constant thing that happens in Sex and City of women saying to each other, like, sweetie, I'm going to go. And they just leave each other. Sweetie, I'm going to take off. I'm going to take off. No, you enjoy the night. Just go. And it's like, women don't do that to yeah, each that, other. That is the number one way in which straight women do not hang out. Probably gay women too. <laughs> but like, come <laughs> on. Like, if you meet a woman in the evening time, like say, say you meet her at six o'clock, you can't leave before midnight or else you're in a fight, you know? Unless <laughs> you get a phone call and your dad's had a stroke. Like, you, That's you, it. Are, That's it. you are in that interaction. Like, what? <laughs> we sort of talked about a lot about how we think of season, like, episode four as being this great intro, this sort of, like, great romance, this kind of screwball quality, this great charm they have. Mm -hmm. And then we have this unfurling that happens with Carrie, and then by the end of it, she's so strung out and desperate after all of these attempts to secure this man's affection that he he, he sort of gives her the thing, like, oh, let's go to St. Bart's for the weekend as a kind of um, a peace offering for him refusing to introduce her to his mother and then she's sort of at her apartment she's got her little luggage case she's got the beautiful little outfit on and she sort of realizes that she is never gonna get the thing she wants from this man and she says mm. tell me i'm the one and he can't which is like it's a huge thing for anyone to say to anyone but nonetheless yeah. like, like even less so a man who has treated you with that level of like pleasant disinterest um yeah and and it's the thing, it's the sort of the thing that she needs. It's like the attic moment of like, oh, this is the 
this is the night that was too much that's going to make me quit yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course we know as viewers that like she's never go- she's never going to quit. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like a very mature like very bittersweet ending that I think it ends on a mm-hmm. line about like that you know this was she was it, it the whole episode is about faith and how you know it's this quite twee thing about having faith in yourself. But when yeah. you have this character who has nobody else to rely on but herself, actually does have a lot of weight. You know, it's not the most revolutionary yeah. thing in the world, but it definitely feels like a rounded and mature way to round off a season that you think is going to be about love, but is actually about something larger and longer. Episode one, season one, done. In the bag. This has been Sentimental in the City. I'm me, you're you. What's we'll up? We'll see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.